Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. On Commons People this week, American Carnage. This is not dissent. It's disorder. It's chaos. It borders on sedition. Injections versus infections. After the marathon of last year, we are indeed now in a sprint, a race to vaccinate the vulnerable faster than the virus can reach them. And, and is Brexit done? Parting is such sweet sorrow. But to use a line from T.S. Eliot, what we call the beginning is often the end. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Rachel Wearmouth. Hi Arj. Hi Rachel. We've got the Labour MP Rosie Duffield. Hello. Hi Rosie and the director of the UK in a Changing Europe think tank is back, Anand Menon. Hi Arj. Well, if you thought 2020 was bad, just get a load of 2021. We're seven days in and the UK has been placed into another coronavirus lockdown. But it's in America where things are getting really out of hand after a pro-Trump mob stormed the Capitol in an attempt to overturn the election and prevent Joe Biden becoming president. Priti Patel directly blamed Donald Trump for inspiring the insurrection by urging protesters to march on the country's seat of democracy, while lawmakers counted the electoral college votes to make Biden president. But after being suspended from Twitter and Facebook, the lame duck president has now finally committed to an orderly transition of power. The violence has left four dead and led to at least 52 arrests. Let's hear Biden's take on the events last night. This is not dissent. It's disorder. It's chaos. It borders on sedition. And it must end now. I call on this mob to pull back and allow the work of democracy to go forward. You've heard me say before in different contexts, The words of a president matter, no matter how good or bad that president is. At their best, the words of a president can inspire. At their worst, they can incite. Um, Rachel, sometimes when you look over stateside and kind of domestic political issues like this, we think, should this matter to us in the UK? Uh, well, yes, I think it. I think it does matter to us in the UK. But I think it particularly matters to Boris Johnson and some members of his cabinet who got unquestionably quite close to Donald Trump. Um, I think you know you remember the pictures of Michael Gove with Donald Trump. You know Jacob Rees-Mogg describing him as a big ally, um, and and it's not like these politicians are able to say that you know that they didn't know what Donald Trump was like when you think about um, his response to Charlottesville, um, boasting about sexual assault, comments about that disabled journalist. Um, and I think there'll be a lot of questions now as to um, how responsible our politicians have been with their use of language. I mean, remember at the time of the last election that 
you know, Boris Johnson got a lot of criticism for using the word surrender act. And, you know, the, we heard a lot of that around that time about betrayal and traitor. Um, but we also really need the Joe Biden White House, um, particularly when we think about trade and going forward. So I think there are huge implications there as to how our government now starts to build bridges with um, Donald Trump's successor. And I think there are also sort of broader questions around policy, just, you know, the regulation of social media. Um, you know, Trump was suspended from Facebook and Twitter, but this is just um, after he was able to further inflame, um, you know, a violent attempt at a coup. So I think these are all the things that they're huge questions, um, but this kind of brings all of these things to a head, I think. Yeah, Anand, interesting points raised by Rachel there. The government always sort of said, while Trump was president, you know, the US is a great ally, so we've got to, you know, treat the US with respect. And, and they kind of used that as an excuse for not calling out some of his most extreme behaviours. Do you think that's that was reasonable looking back? Well, I think you've got to work with your allies. Yes, I think of more worry is the fact that, you know, whilst... Boris Johnson is very different to Donald Trump. There are elements of the same playbook. I remember, I think it was about a year ago, where the Prime Minister was saying that he wouldn't go to the Queen and resign in the event of a no-confidence vote. Now, that's not exactly the same as what's going on here, but there is, you know, there are shades on both sides of the Atlantic of this desire to sort of challenge what we thought were the rules of the game. And the other lesson for me about this that is interesting and, and depressing in equal measure, I suppose, is... There are still so many people having seen this term of this president who voted for him. I mean, you know, and, and it speaks to, I think, the levels of anger with what there was before and what is seen as the establishment. And I think that's pretty much the case here as well, uh, though obviously there are, there are real contextual differences. And it's something we should all worry about is what do we do to address that anger? I mean, we can't just live in a state of permanent protest with half the country just wanting to, you know, knock the system down. So what can be done and what lessons can we learn from it? Yeah, Rosie, are you worried about what this might mean as we kind of, well, we're not close to another election, but we're, we're getting there, aren't we? You never know. It's not safe to say that at the moment, is it? But I totally agree with Ananda because because basically we have seen this kind of anti-establishment movement, haven't we? Lots of people were kind of comparing people like me that marched against Brexit and for a people's vote with those kind of crowds yesterday, which obviously made people like me really cross. But um, but there is this kind of unsettled feeling, isn't there, about democracy, what we want. I think it's this sort of great big psychological world sort of zeitgeist, isn't it? You know, what's going on? We're questioning everything and, you know, what's establishment and not. And and this sort of idea that Boris Johnson sticks to the rules. No, he doesn't. We, we know that. So, of course, he kind of seems to admire someone who also doesn't stick to the rules and parliamentary democracy. And, you know, he came up against the courts several times. The last government came up against the courts with the Clean Air Act and things like that. So, people like me are really watching this closely and in kind of morbid fascination, really. Yeah, it's interesting. Whoever wants to answer this, it, it seems like Boris Johnson has maybe moved away from that kind of playbook a little bit with Dominic Cummings being sacked and Brexit, whether you think it's done or not, kind of the, the sting being taken out of Brexit. Do you think we're, we're sort of beyond that stage now and we've avoided... Well, I'm not sure if we've avoided the worst of it, given we had an MP murdered in the referendum, but do you think we're at least past it? 
Well, I think we're I think we're still seeing the impact. That's that's the mm. thing. I mean, just only on Monday, some um, there was a man who was locked up for threatening to to shoot Bridget Phillipson over her support for um, second Brexit referendum. You know, it's kind of it. We might be moving away from it, but we also need someone to take responsibility for just how bad things have got, and that includes people who are in power. You know, you can't use this kind of language to gain some electoral advantage and then pretend like you are not responsible for what follows. And yeah, totally we just agree. Don't know, do we? we just don't know what this government's going to be like because mm. they haven't really had time to show themselves because the whole thing's been COVID, which has been a sort of national emergency. But, you know, yes, there are signs that Boris Johnson wants to sort of deliver on some of his one nation rhetoric, particularly in foreign policy, actually, which is why I'm relatively relaxed about the relationship with Biden, because substantively our foreign policy priorities are essentially the same as Joe Biden's. So whatever the personality problems, I think that will be fine. But at home, what I don't know is whether that one nation Tory thing will triumph. Because remember, the Tories are a values coalition now. Uh, they are a coalition of Leave voters, and what holds them together are those identity politics. So actually, from, mm. a, from an electoral point of view, it would make sense for the Tories to touch on those sorts of issues, you know, whether it's immigration, statues, all those sort of values things. And that could make for a really uncomfortable few years if that's the direction they decide to go in. We've already seen that, though, haven't we, with the cutting of the aid budget? I and mean, it was kind of almost sneaked yeah. through. And, you know, I've had my eye on that for years thinking, is it safe? Is it safe? You know, we took out 0.7% of the GDP. It's tiny, really. And we all thought that that was such a smallish kind of a figure. It was kind of enshrined in law and it was all safe. But no, we've got to keep our eye on and everything like that, because they seem to be a government, again, who are, you know, yeah. give them an inch and then they take more and more and more away. So we've really got to be very vigilant, I think, on my side of the house. And looking at America, Rosie, and, and the latest situation there, I mean, I know UK politicians don't like to comment on US politics, but would you encourage uh, either Congress or the US cabinet to remove Trump, even though the inauguration is just some days away? My emotional side says absolutely yes. The part of me that marched against his visit says absolutely yes. Um, you know, I'm not so diplomatic there as I am emotional and, and kind of invested in women and women's rights. And, you know, I feel like women have been screaming either inside or outside all the time he's been there. And, you know, the sooner he's gone, the better. I think he's dangerous. You know, we've seen that, haven't we? Yeah, well, uh, let's move on. Um, well, as I said, Boris Johnson has put the UK into a minimum seven-week COVID lockdown to combat a surge in cases. And with a new, more transmissible variant taking hold, it is now injections versus infections with the hope that vaccinations can give us a final route out of lockdown. The Prime Minister said he's aiming to jab the 13 million most vulnerable people by mid-February to allow schools to reopen and a potential wider easing of restrictions. But there are understandable concerns that he is once again over-promising. Let's hear the PM. After the marathon of last year, we are indeed now in a sprint, a race to vaccinate the vulnerable faster than the virus can reach them. And every needle in every arm makes a difference. As I say, we're already vaccinating faster than every uh, comparable country, and that rate, I hope, will only increase. But if we're going to win this race, for our population. We have to give our army of vaccinators the biggest head start we possibly can. And that is why, uh, Mr Speaker, to do that, we must once again stay at home, protect the NHS and save lives. Rachel, was this lockdown unavoidable given the transmissibility of the new variant? 
uh, yes, it absolutely was unavoidable. And it seemed, uh, the, the question for me is just why Boris Johnson avoided it for so long. You know, I mean, when you saw, we saw the leaked documents in the last 24 hours, I think they're in the health service journal, just saying that London hospitals are likely to be overwhelmed even on the best case scenario at some point in January. You have to kind of look at the timeline as to what's happened and when and ask why hasn't the prime minister acted? So we knew that the health secretary was concerned about um, the new variant on December 14th, but Public Health England was worried about um, a huge rise in cases in Kent um, in late November, dis dis you know, despite the restrictions being in place. And setting all of that aside, Sage had said on November 4th, 15th that any relaxation of coronavirus restrictions over Christmas would increase infections potentially by a large amount, they said. So why, with a new variant between 50% and 70% more transmissible, do we relax restrictions at all when the scientists have said that even without knowing about the new variant, that it was going to increase um, um, infections? And then Sage advised against shutting schools, advised to shut schools on December 22nd. And just a couple of days ago, Boris Johnson was saying that schools are safe. So you just, I just wonder why still the Prime Minister just doesn't seem to act when he should. He seems to just leave it, at, just let it happen for a few days. And you kind of just wonder why he's never able to start, start locking down or start putting restrictions in place as soon as he needs to. Yeah, uh, Rosie, um, we've seen record-breaking rises in cases almost every day for sort of the last week. Yeah. Given it takes sort of five to ten days before people start feeling feeling symptoms of COVID and therefore go and get a test. Can we directly blame this now on the Christmas easing of restrictions, given that time? Yeah, I mean, not so much in Kent where we saw this new variant, because I think yeah. people were really scared of that. But like Rachel said, they knew for ages and none of us in Kent were told, you know, people I was hearing from friends whose kids schools were shutting on a kind of daily, weekly basis. It was so and so's year, so and so's year, so and so's school. And I kept thinking, why is it suddenly spreading so much in Kent? We hadn't heard of this new variant. And then with Boris Johnson and, and you know, the government playing hokey cokey with um, the tier system, right? We're in, we're out, we're, we're locked down, we're not. There was such confusion. And I think, you know, the idea that it's to keep businesses going is a, is a red herring because businesses I knew in the area were spending so much money making themselves COVID compliant and tier friendly. And then they were shut, then they're open. So it's caused even more a kind of financial ruin, if you like. And, you know, they've spent money on adapting the businesses and stuff. So it hasn't helped anyone at all. And the spread, as you said, is absolutely out of control now so it's really terrifying if he'd stuck to it when Keir called for it around about half term it would be it would have been more like the Welsh situation let's try and save Christmas but we didn't we just kept kind of limping forwards and it hasn't helped yeah what's it like in Kent at the moment that's obviously where the, the new variant started the the Kent mutant I suppose um yeah uh, it's pretty terrifying, to be honest. Yeah. The hospitals are completely overwhelmed. I don't want to scare people in my patch too much. Um, they're doing their best and they're doing a brilliant job. But we know that people have been sent out of Kent for a good few weeks now. So people are having to travel to Southampton. At the beginning of all of this, when we were sending people out, we were sending people out to different tiers, highly infectious new variant patients to different tiers. So it's all been a bit of a shambles. And are they being sent? Are they being transported by the NHS or do they have to make their own way down to... I think if you're that ill that you need sort of emergency care, yeah, you're sure. probably in an ambulance, yeah. yeah, yeah but... Absolutely. Um, 
Anand, just on vaccinations, um, how much of a risk did Johnson take with his target of vaccinating the 13 million most vulnerable by mid-February? He's been accused repeatedly of over-promising and under-delivering during this pandemic. I mean, it's a massive risk. And it's a massive risk in two ways. But I mean, the first thing I'd say is he's just incapable of hedging, isn't he? I mean, he's got to go all out. And, and, and this, the inability to express any kind of doubt, I think, has been really damaging. And we saw this, of course, with the lockdown, didn't we? Sunday, schools are safe. Monday, schools are shut. And actually, Sunday, we're trying to ensure that schools are safe. It's obviously a fluid situation. We don't yet know for certain. Would have just sounded a lot better come the Monday and what he said then. But there's this sort of desire to be absolutely clear cut, which I think is temperamental rather than political in the case of, of the prime minister. But it causes problems. And of course, the second element of risk about this, even if you have faith in the logistical ability of this government to roll out an eye watering number. I mean, what, what, what have we done so far? One point five million out of thirteen and a half million. Yeah. So, you know, there's quite a lot to go before the end of February. But even if you have faith in that, the other thing uh, that's bubbling away is whether this notion that you can increase the gap between the two doses. Uh, and of course, we've had a bit of pushback from the World Health Organization about that strikes me as the ultimate risk. Because uh, if it proves that that was mistaken, then I think the political uh, consequences for the government will be very, very severe indeed. But I mean, you know, I think we all hope that they it works and that they're proven right on this one and that the vaccine does work even with a bigger gap between them. But, you know, you're just picking up signs from people outside the United Kingdom uh, along the lines of hmm, that doesn't seem to us to be particularly wise. But what, what do you think are the consequences of him not hitting that 13 million by mid-February target. I mean, that is, it's up there in blinking lights, isn't it? It's, if we need to meet this, if we don't meet it, then lockdown will be longer and it will kind of directly be the government's fault, won't it? Well, I suppose the big question there is, if they don't meet the target but start to loosen lockdown, they might get away with it. But that strikes me as a bad response to a public health crisis if you haven't vaccinated enough people. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Rosie, uh, lockdowns have a lot of, horrible impacts, of course, as well, or even if they're necessary to um, control the virus. You've been a, a victim of domestic abuse. Are you worried about how this latest lockdown could affect those in abusive relationships? Yeah. Is the government doing enough? And have we learned from the first lockdown, do you think? I'm worried about it all the time. I mean, it's something that uh, my team and I talk about. We do weekly surgeries and it's pretty obvious when sometimes particularly women come to us about an issue and it kind of transpires that domestic abuse is somewhere involved in that issue um so i know that it must be particularly terrifying to be locked down with someone that you really want to get away from usually you might have the school run even or um going to work if that's removed then it must be absolute hell um i'm glad very much that i'm not in that situation that i was in during a lockdown i can't really imagine um the government aren't really necessarily doing enough i mean my local police have been fantastic They've been talking to me a lot and they've been prioritising uh, domestic abuse cases as much as they can. But but it is a hidden problem. If you're really in that situation, nobody's going to know about it. Um, I think we need to make sure that all of the charities are funded, that they're getting this COVID funding, um, that they're being sort of enabled to reach out in other ways if they can't do one to one counselling. It's a really difficult dilemma, but the government have got to listen to the experts. Yeah, um, Rachel, uh, we're kind of bouncing all over the place here, but Rachel, uh, Keir Starmer's faced a bit a bit of criticism over his response. He, he kind of 
people have been saying that he waits until something's inevitable and then calls for it and then claims it. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's good. I think that's kind of fair, isn't it? I think a big part of the of the Labour strategy has been to not look like it's um, opposing the government for opposing's sake and to show that it's um, a party ready ready for government. Um, and I think the way that the Kia seems to um, approach a lot of the COVID crisis um, questions is to sort of, yeah, I mean, Monday is to wait until it seems inevitable and then say, oh, um, we're calling for this, by the way, Labour, Labour thinks this should happen. Um, and, and Monday was kind of a case in point where um, until just a few hours before schools were going to close, um, Labour's position was actually to that schools should should schools should be kept open, and it wasn't until the very last minute that um, Labour changed its position to say, "Oh, you know, it's inevitable now that schools should close. We think Boris Johnson should do it." Um, and I, I don't know how much longer Kia can really get away with with, with with taking that approach. Yeah, Rosie, how long can yeah. Kia get away with taking that approach? Um, good question. It's it's easy for me because I'm a slightly rebellious backbencher. So when I found, you know, when I realised that absolutely everyone in my patch that was contacting me was agreeing with me that schools should be closed, you know, more or less the overwhelming majority, I thought, I'm just going to call for this. And I can. I don't have to wait necessarily for the kind of official party lines, um, you know, which is exactly what I did over the people's vote. And um, you just have to, to feel that strength of people coming together and saying, hang on a second, I've been in a school, you know, I've worked in school, I was a teaching assistant before I got elected. There is no way that you can keep families and, and siblings kind of apart and safe if you've got a four-year-old kissing another four-year-old or chasing another four-year-old, you know, it's completely impossible. So they had to close schools. And yeah, I, I understand what you're saying about maybe we're a little bit slow to react, but, but also Rachel's point is true that we're, we're trying really hard not to be seen to be partisan just for the sake of it. I think people need that sense of security and togetherness in the whole of government and, and the opposition. So it's a fine line, isn't it? But you'd like to see Keir sort of lead the debate more than he is, is that fair I think saying? sometimes we've been a bit behind. I mean, I'm really glad our education team are now sort of saying all the things they're saying about remote learning and keeping schools and colleges closed until it's safe and universities. But yeah, possibly we've been a bit behind. Yeah, but Captain Inevitable is a step forward from Captain Hindsight. <laughs> <laughs> true. Yeah. Nice. Um, and just a final one on schools, uh, uh, Rosie. What do you make of this idea of vaccinating teachers um, Absolutely. Early, yeah. as early as possible and maybe putting yeah. them up the list? Just, just the teachers I know are so absolutely exhausted. They've been working flat out. You know, none of us have really had a day off in this, have we? And um, and they're you know lesson planning, reacting, worrying about their kids. Actually, that's the thing you do at night when you're a teacher. You don't just sort of switch off. You worry about families that you know, especially during this whole. Um, free school meals, debacle, breakfast clubs. Um, so those teachers are going to be on a very low ebb, very low morale. So they're probably more susceptible to anything that's going around. And they're expected to be on the front line dealing with people that are spreading it. Of course, they knew they need the vaccine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's move on. Um, well, it's believe it or not, it's only a week since the Brexit transition period ended with the UK finally leaving the orbit of Brussels rules after Johnson struck a trade deal with the EU. The PM has wrongly insisted that there are no new non-tariff barriers to trade with the EU, and there are already reports that some businesses are simply giving up on cross-channel trade due to the mountains of new red tape. 
but given the late, late Christmas Eve striking of the deal, you may be forgiven for losing track. Let's just go back and have a listen to European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen that day. At the end of a successful negotiations journey, I normally feel joy. But today, I only feel quite satisfaction and, frankly speaking, relief. I know this is a difficult day for some. And to our friends in the United Kingdom, I want to say, parting is such sweet sorrow. But to use a line from T.S. Eliot, what we call the beginning is often the end. And to make an end is to make a beginning. So to all Europeans, I say, it is time to leave Brexit behind. Our future is made in Europe. Thank you so much. Uh, Anand, I understand you were uh, getting phone calls from journalists on Christmas Day. So for, for people who spent their Christmases enjoying themselves rather than reading hundreds of pages of Brexit legal text, uh, can you sum up what the deal does? Who, who are the winners and losers? And did Boris Johnson play a blinder? You just don't know how to enjoy yourself, do you, Arch? <laughs> <laughs> Little glass of sherry and the trade and cooperation agreement <laughs> Christmas in my book. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, as everything with Brexit, it depends what you're talking about. I think both sides will go away happy that they've achieved the aims they set themselves for these negotiations. That's to say, the, uh, you know, for Boris Johnson, it's an absolute triumph to have avoided any pushback from the European Research Group. Uh, for the European Union to get this past member states, some of whom were getting really bolshy about the fisheries deal towards the end, and not to be accused of selling out EU standards or the single market is a triumph. That being said, this is going to have significant economic implications going forward. Uh, you know, it's worth saying this over and over again, medium term, the implications of this Brexit deal will be more significant than the implications of COVID for the economy in aggregate terms. Uh, but, but this whole thing is political. Certainly from the perspective of our government, this is about politics. This is about delivering on the Brexit because the USP of this prime minister is the guy who actually gets it done, unlike his predecessors, and delivering in such a way that he can't be outflanked on the right. Uh, and, you know, you, see, you still see this in the press all the time, don't you, that the real fear of number 10 is being outflanked on the right. It's very, very clear that that was the prime objective in these negotiations. So for the moment, at least, I think both sides will be pretty happy. I mean, there are lots of tests to come, not least when the government starts making decisions on free ports and the exact T's and C's around free ports and whether or not the European Commission says, hang on a sec, this is in breach of the terms of the agreement. And, you know, in that sense, Brexit isn't done because this agreement, one of the most amazing things about this agreement is it kind of sets the scene for years and years and years of more agreement and more negotiations in all sorts of different ways. So, you know, for civil servants, at least, Brexit is not going to seem done for a very, very long time because they're going to be talking to Brussels for the foreseeable future. Yeah, and kind of on that point, Rosie, you campaigned for a people's vote, as you said. Mm -hmm. Do you think... The, the question of EU membership is now settled for a generation? No, nope, I'm not giving up. 
<laughs> all the groups that I was involved with already calling themselves rejoiners, you know, and they're starting to think about that. I think maybe it's a little bit too soon, but we might as well start to build a movement and, and look at that. So instead, you know, I don't want to be someone going, told you so, you know, I really wish I was wrong. I really wish that, you know, Ramona's were just Ramoning and that, you know, the Libras had it all right. But I don't think we're going to, you know, and said it's going to be at least a decade of, of dealing with this. This is literally just the start. And that was part of, of the Brexit bus kind of lying, wasn't it, really, that we can just go bang and that's it and it's done. Um, but, but having said that, I don't know that either side is especially happy. The fishing for leave lot weren't happy with the fisheries deal, were they? So mm -hmm. there are still groups that are going, hang on a sec. And Nigel Farage and people are saying, well, this doesn't go far enough. So who's a winner here? I don't know. I can't see too many of them. Yeah, just, just to follow up, Rosie, um, you say you're not giving up and, and there's talk already of a rejoin campaign. How how long do you think that might take to actually materialise? Oh, good question. Is that, are you talking within a few years? Um, well, certainly groups in sort of my patch of Kent, you know, we're so near to Europe. We've got so many EU citizens that sort of live and commute. And, you know, we've got the EU university research programmes and all those links. They're already sort of saying, right, come on, what can we do? How can we get back? And we'd never severed those ties and we're not going to. Um, so those groups are already kind of, you know, raring to go. I don't know politically how long it's going to take to kind of just let the dust settle a little bit. Um, before we start campaigning, but you know, I'll be there when it's inevitable, really. Yeah. Uh, so, so can I can I just sort of butt in and ask a question? So, what did you make of Keir Starmer's comments after Christmas? Then that he wouldn't be seeking the change in the. I mean, he's ruled that out, hasn't he? He said that's not going to become Labour policy. Yeah, but you know, <laughs> us back <laughs> French rebels don't necessarily have to pay too much attention to that. And you know, there are enough of us. You know, all of the people that that tried to you know every day groups of Labour MPs and opposition MPs were meeting about people's vote and and trying to take it to the absolute last minute those people haven't gone away and and most people on the front bench who sort of voted for this deal last week did it with a very heavy heart and they haven't given up either you know we will try and shift the leadership as and when it it needs to to shift towards rejoining I would imagine but possibly we might even have a different sort of setup different leader by then who knows we're not talking kind of in the next five years realistically and, and how many of you are there in that kind of camp that you sort of talk about there the majority of the parliamentary labor party wanted us to remain and were campaigning really hard on that and towards the end almost all of those people had signed up towards a people's vote so um the majority of us you know we, we don't need converting again we've done all that kind of gelling together if you like it, it was it was pretty hellish you know voting last year um two three in the morning on these deals and things and all the amendments we put forward so all of that hurt is still there we're still desperate to rejoin if we possibly can i think at heart but yeah it doesn't it does depend on negotiating with labor party policy yeah and and would the end goal then to, to be to get to get the leadership to back rejoin or would it be something like single market membership or or, or something you know closer relationship with europe certainly a closer relationship and then there are people like me who want to rejoin obviously but i think you know, getting those bits back, even in increments, is better than nothing. You know, we're going to all see that this is going to be not very good for trade. Would you join the euro? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know, actually. I mean, in a way, why not? In a way, why not at least look at it? I'm not an economics expert. I'm not going to pretend to be. But um, that it could be on the table, couldn't it? Yeah. Um, Rachel, how, how how open do you think Keir Starmer is to persuasion on on 
this and negotiating at least a future a future sort of closer relationship with the EU? Um, well, I think he said in his his statement when the um, when the the deal was announced that that he would you know he, he wanted to improve upon the deal, which is kind of just another way of saying I would renegotiate it and I and I would want us to be much much closer to it. I think where he's going to where he's going to struggle is how to translate stuff like that into language that he can speak to to voters on, on the issue about. You know, I mean, there are loads of red wall voters who are just a million miles away from that position, Rosie. And no, would, you I know, know, you know, know, and just would would um it's kind of anathema to to um to them right now and I think might might be for a good few years yet. Yeah. Um, it's a long yeah, way away, isn't it? I mean that's the <laughs> thing. And politics is about practicalities. And I mean if if we see a load of companies coming out and saying this is an utter nightmare, that's one set of circumstances. If people yeah. start to notice an economic impact as well, there's a, I mean, I'm not saying that will happen, but I think, you know, he's got time to see whether or not people think, okay, well, you know, can't really notice anything, that's fine, or whether there is a big pushback. And I'm surely that's what the thing that will ultimately, that's the beauty of being the opposition party, isn't it, is you can wait mm. to decide. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But worth mentioning that not only the red wall voters are going to be not ready for that. Look at London and the southeast. You know, we could see them turning against Labour if we don't sort of start to be much more honest about these trade deals and on our relationship with Europe. You know, the kind of liberal elite, if you like, you know, represented by people like me, you know, they still vote. They vote and they campaign and they march and, you know, they make their voices heard. So Keir can't afford to just completely dismiss that group of people as well. And the, the clever thing that Boris Johnson did in the deal, I think, is this is the break clause because he gives himself a lot of wiggle room there as well. True. So if, if he does get a lot of criticism over how Brexit plays out, you know, he's got he's got he's, he's created the means to go back and speak to, to Brussels mm. about it. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. But Anand, it's time for the quiz, which I'm sure you'll be all be delighted by. But Anand especially. Yeah, you did win last time. So you've got a you've got a uh, a crown to defend now. <laughs> um, with well, the quiz is is on. Well, with Donald Trump preparing to hand over power to Joe Biden, it's all about inauguration ceremonies. Presidential inauguration ceremonies, that is. Um, in the US. So question shout the answer if you know it. Um, and you may get a point. Uh, since 1937, inaugurations have been held on the same date at the same time. What are they? It's the 20th of January. Unless oh, it's a well done. It's the 20th of January, yeah. And unless it's a Sunday, I think. Oh, that's probably right. I don't know that. Um, and what time? Oh, I can't remember. Uh, For a bonus point, anyone? I watch it. Not a clue. Yeah, I watch it. But Three o'clock. No. It's 12 noon. 12 noon. Oh, One point for Okay, second question. Since 1801, most inauguration ceremonies have been held in Washington, D.C. But before that, they were held in two other U.S. cities, which were, at the time, the nation's capital. Which, was, which cities were they? God, not a clue on this. No idea, sorry. I'm guessing Philly. <laughs> Yeah, Philadelphia's one. Point for you, Anand. Um, US cities, guys, just guess. Oh, so San Francisco. <laughs> LA, I don't know. Uh, That's not even a city. I've no idea. It's New, <laughs> New York City. Oh, okay. That was probably really obvious. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But final this question. Quizzes are crap, Rosie. I mean, there's no <laughs> way. All right. You've bloody won this one as well. <laughs> uh, the final question. Only five outgoing presidents have refused to attend their successor's inauguration. I'm not going to ask you to name them all, but who was the most recent? Surely Trump. Nixon. Yes. Trump. Correct. Oh, my God. Okay. Nixon. All right. Yes. Was Nixon. he one? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Nixon He's didn't attend. No, it's not happened yet. Well, there we go, you see, Captain Forsyth. <laughs> <laughs> so Trump the... officially said he's not going to go then, is that the thing? I don't know, I've lost track. I'm, I'm not sure, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, so it's two points to Anand, one to Rosie, zero yeah. for Rachel. Sorry, Rachel. Uh, well done, Anand, you've won two in a row now. That's it now. That's, it. that's, that's, a, that's pretty impressive. Streak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, hopefully uh, Leeds United can replicate that anyway. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels and please be sure to leave a review and get your daily dose of what's happening in Westminster by subscribing to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone. Uh, we'll just leave you with the under fire education secretary, Gavin Williamson, trying to explain what's going on with England's schools. And I can absolutely assure the honourable lady, I will not let schools be open for a moment longer than they, uh, I will not let schools, I will not let schools be closed for a moment longer than they need to be. I will do everything I can. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.